journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. And welcome again to another three quarters of an hour where we're spending our time together doing the most important thing on planet Earth, and that's doing the mitzvah of learning Torah. Thank you for joining me, and um, I look forward to hopefully being informative and um, teaching you something. And as always, I love people when they join the conversation. So if you do have a question to ask, please feel free. Our SMS line is 34519. Our Telegram number is 061-895-1019. We are learning the book of Exodus. We are learning how the Jews have left Egypt. We are learning the fact that the Egyptian exile and redemption is actually a prototype for final redemption, which we are looking forward to very, very early. And today we are going to concentrate one more time, um, as the Chumash does, on the Paschal Sacrifice. Okay, that was the main sacrifice that was brought just before they left Egypt. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we went through all the, 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 the ideas behind it. But we're going to go through a little bit more and we're going to understand just even more broadly why it was so important, this passable sacrifice. It wasn't only brought that year when we left Egypt, but it became a yearly celebration every single year. Um, and it will be back on our menus of what it is that we have to do on Pesach, please God, with the arrival of Mashiach and the building of the Beit HaMikdash. So for those of you that are not driving, those of you sitting and maybe having a bit of lunch right now, you can hop on to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. We're in the Parsha of Bo, and we are looking at chapter 12, verse 43. So here are a few more um, ideas that we need to find out or need to understand um, about the Paschal Sacrifice, or as we call it in Hebrew, the Korban Pesach. And so God is speaking now to Moses and to Aaron, um, and he says, This is the decree of the Paschal offering, of the Pesach offering. No outsider may eat it. Okay? So one of the extra laws around it is that outsiders, um, and outsiders include um, includes both people, Gentile people, but it also includes apostate Jews. Um, this was very much a, a korban, a, um, a uh, sacrifice, that was directed only at Jewish people. Now you will go and see that the Paschal lamb is not, um, is not only about the fact that a Gentile or an apostate Jew cannot eat it, but that it is very, very much connected to Brit Milah, to circumcision, as you will see now in verse 44. Even if a man buys a slave for cash, you have to circumcise him and then he can eat it. So, if a man in biblical times, there is um, laws concerning owning a slave, and I have to say over here, just to be very clear, um, 
owning slaves in the olden days was something that was common, was accepted. Um, and I'm certainly not going and saying that it is something that we, we, we necessarily practice today, but just to understand the context behind it, um, a Jewish slave, albeit that they are a slave, meaning that they've sold themselves and are now working for a master, there is a tremendous amount of laws um, around the the, the proper looking after a slave. A slave came with many, many rights and many, many responsibilities. And albeit that they had the title slave, um, their rights were really, really looked after unbelievably in the Torah. And when we get to the parsha of Mishpatim, um, which will be in um, a couple of parshiot, we will land up reading about all the, the laws that 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 um, a Jew was obligated to fulfill in looking after the slave, the slave's children, the slave's wife, um, what we could and we could not do. And you would see that even in in biblical times, where things tended to be a, a far more um, rough around the edges, if I can use that terminology, nevertheless, the rights and the respect of a human being were taken into consideration in a very very big way. So here we've got the situation that a man buys a slave, he, the, the owner, cannot eat the pastor lamb until his slave is circumcised because owning an uncircumcised slave prevents one from eating the carbon Pesach. Um, if somebody bought a slave for cash, he can only um, eat the offering after the slave is circumcised. So having um, people around you that are not circumcised, forbidden, um, for, uh, it was forbidden for you to even eat it. And so if you did have a slave that was uncircumcised, it was a, um, it, it was a problem. And then even more so, verse 45, who else cannot eat it? A temporary resident, it was called a toshat. That is a Gentile who accepts upon himself the seven universal Noahide laws. So although he formally aligns himself with the, with the Jewish nation in this manner, he cannot eat the pastor lamb. And similarly, the employee of an Israelite may not eat it. So just to explain that just a little bit more, um, what we have over here is the, the the law that what happens to um, what happens to a gentile um, who decides to act in accordance with Jewish law and keep the seven Noahide laws. Well, those they are called righteous gentiles, um, and lots lots of them today call themselves Noahides, even though they are subscribing to the way the Torah demands a, a gentile to behave. Nevertheless, he cannot eat it. And similarly, if somebody um, is an employee of an Israelite, we, you cannot eat it. If you have any questions, I will try to answer them. You can ask them on 34519 or 061-895-1019. That's our telegram number. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Elzowski 101.95 FM. This is 
mystical texts, and we are reading in the book of um, Exodus. We are looking at chapter uh, 12, verses 43, 44, 45. And so far, we've established that when it comes to the Corbin Pesach, when it comes to the Paschal lamb, you cannot eat it. <clears throat> not, not everybody can eat it. And you cannot eat it if you're not circumcised. You cannot eat it if you own a slave that is not circumcised. A non-Jewish Gentile, albeit a righteous Gentile that is keeping the seven no hard laws, cannot eat it. Nor can somebody who's an employee of a Jewish person not eat it. Um, even if we go as far as to say if the Gentile chooses to circumcise themselves, they still may not eat of the Paschal lamb. It is only when and if a Gentile, a Gentile formally converts to Judaism and accepts upon themselves all the commandments, um, then um, he can eat of this offering. So it is very much an offering brought about, um, um, brought onto the Jewish people themselves. Then there are other laws that are pertaining to the Korban Pesach. Let's look in chapter 40, I mean, sorry, verse 46. Very, very interesting law that the Korban Pesach may not be eaten in two places. So, for example, if 10 people share in a lamb, they cannot break into two groups and each eat their portion in a separate place. All those that are sharing the lamb must eat together. Secondly, none of the flesh may be given to an outsider who is not a member of the original group. So it's forbidden to send any of the meat of the offering, say, for example, as a gift to a friend. It cannot be taken out of the group. Okay, so those who took shares in the lamb before it was slaughtered are the only people who are permitted to eat from it. Now, what happens if one does remove a piece of the carbon Pesach from the place where the group is eating? Then what happens is that the flesh becomes unfit and may no longer be eaten. And, this, and to do this is a violation of the prohibition that we have just read, that you cannot... You cannot uh, remove from it and eat elsewhere, and the penalty is flogging. If a piece of meat has been taken out once and someone else takes it out again, the second person, by the way, um, does not incur such a penalty. So that's the first part. Whoever has bought into that Corbin Pesach and wherever you're going to eat it is the place where it is. Do not take it out. Do not share it. Do not share it as a gift. Do not bring in somebody else to eat it. It's only for those of the original group. Now, the other thing that was said in verse 46 is that it is forbidden to crack or break any bone that contains an olive-sized piece of meat or marrow. If you do that, again, there is the penalty of flogging. And this is true even if two or three people break a single bone. So you can see over here um, a very, very interesting idea because the prohibition against breaking the bones is only in relation to the Korban Pesach. In the case of any and all other sacrifices that were brought in the Beit HaMikdash, it was permitted to crack the bones and remove the marrow. And truthfully, it was encouraged 
And even today, we know that if you open up the bones, you can eat the marrow. The marrow is very, very, very nutritious. The carbon Pesach, however, was unique. Now, why? Let's go back and understand, and we did discuss this quite a bit when we um, when we uh, were discussing the Korban Pesach initially. The primary purpose of the Korban Pesach was to demonstrate the impotence of the Egyptian sheep god. And that's why the bones had to be kept whole and recognizable. And when you had finished eating it, you were able to throw them outside so the dogs could get to them. What would happen then? The Egyptians would see the bones of their god being chewed by dogs. It was a purposeful action. What would that do? Well, that would cause the Egyptians more anguish than all of the ten, ten plagues. They would be hysterical because you're taking their primary god and you're throwing basically their, their god <laughs> to the dog. And it said that on that night of when, when they ate the Korban Pesach the first time, many Egyptians spent the night gathering up these bones and burying them because they still believed it was their god, right? Because they didn't want them desecrated by the dogs. That's why Hashem says, you must not break any of its bones. You must not break them, but the dogs will. And that, that, that will be a visual sight that this God that they, they cherished more than anything was utterly impotent and all the forces opposing Hashem would be left powerless. Now, there was a, another reason why we couldn't break the bones of the sacrifice. And that is, is that the Israelites are considered royalty. And therefore, it's not proper for them to suck out bones as such, as, as poorer people would do. Because the coming out of Egypt, okay, the, 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 the Passover was the beginning of Israel's greatness. That's when we started being called God's people and God's children. And since we had such a special relationship with God, we couldn't degrade ourselves by sucking out bones. And then you can ask the question, well, okay, that was fine for that time. Why does it become a law that's um, for always? Even now when you have the Beit HaMikdash, we will not be allowed to break any bones. And the answer is, is that when we celebrate the, the, the holiday of we are recording God's miracles. And so we are not allowed to break the bones, even of the pastor lamb, if we have the temple now. Because there was one moment when we were the lowliest of slaves. At the very next moment, we were so great that it was not, no longer proper for us to break a bone and eat marrow. Okay? Um, and that just showed how very quickly, how very quickly. We changed in status, which, by the way, is a indication of how very quickly things are going to change when we see the arrival of Mashiach that should happen, should happen immediately. And why do we keep on 
practicing that, you would have thought, okay, well, it makes sense at the time of Egypt for the people to remember that they quickly flipped from slavery into royalty, but it is never enough to do one thing. Human nature can only be affected by what one does, whether it's good or for bad, and so we keep on repeating things, okay, um, and repeating them. And as we know, the adage that says mitzvah, gorerit mitzvah, that one mitzvah will need another in its wake, that Torah has an intrinsic power to cause a person to eventually abandon sin and to arouse one's heart to repent. So it's kind of like not breaking um, good habits. We need to have good habits. And so it was something that um, that we kept forever. And obviously, God forbid, the vice versa is also applicable. If you have an honest, um, orthodox man and he becomes, he starts getting involved in, in, in questionable practices, it will, it will, it will eventually um, make you become insensitive. You will eventually become completely dishonest. As the other side of the saying goes up, one negative thing will lead to another negative thing. So we've got to ensure all the time that we are reinforcing correct and proper behavior. That's why we have a mezuzah on our door. That's why a man has to wear um, tzitzis on his, um, in his undergarments. That's why he has to have tefillin on his head. All of them, and that's why you have to daven three times a day, all of this is there to guarantee and to remind a person, even if he's by nature a not-so-good person, that he should in, um, um, avoid avoid sin. Just a very quick question, and I'm sure that it might enter your mind to ask this question, is that we now can get, gain an appreciation as to why we daven three times a day, why we wear tzitzis, why we put on filling, why we have a mezuzah, why we need to have a set time to learn Torah, because we need constant reminders to keep us on the straight and narrow. But as one all knows, that these laws particularly um, are for men, not necessarily women. Women are potter, meaning that they are exempt if their um, obligations to the household um, conflict with a time-bound mitzvah, most time-bound mitzvahs. Let me, let, let, let me, let me be uh, particular about that. So while it is admirable and important for a woman to daven three times a day, if the davening three times a day is going to interfere with her raising a family, with feeding the baby, with getting the kids to school, she is not obligated in that mitzvah because she her duties um, are godly in any event. That's why a woman doesn't also wear tzitzis. That's why a woman doesn't wear a yamuka. That's why a woman doesn't put on tefillin. Most of the time bound mitzvahs, the Shabbos and certain other ones, um, are not obligated on women because God understands that a woman's job, a woman doesn't forget about God. A woman is involved in godly work all the time, particularly when it comes to being the akerita by it, the foundation of the home and of the running of the home. It is as if the woman is herself a kayan, a priest, and her house is her beta migdash, is her temple. And um, just like you don't have to remind a client what his work is, so too a woman does not need to be reminded. So we are excused from time-bound mitzvahs. 
we don't have to be reminded all the time. Having said that, um, I'll, I will add in my own caveat, and that is if a woman is in the business world and a woman is involved in the material world, outside of her family and of her home, it would probably behoove her and be best that she does set times maybe for some davening, for some learning, for saying to Helen, of doing some type of kindness because um, being outside in the material world, as we see from, from, from the men, is something that can really make you forget about God and, and, and your obligations towards God. But in essence, women are, are, are free from these obligations simply because of the nature of who she is. Just also one other mention as to why we need to stick so carefully to the missiles, why we have to ensure that the obligations placed upon us are done day in, day out, time and time and time again, is because a person could go and argue, and, and, and sometimes this argument is used, of, uh, what, what harm will there be if I spend a short time amongst um, people who don't think the same way that I do, or I can learn something about the world, say I'll go watch them play, or I'll go listen to their speech, um, I will enjoy myself, and yeah, 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 I won't, I won't join them. They, you know, I know my own nature. I won't be drawn after them. Truthfully, that is a pitfall because our hearts are drawn after what we do. That's why our very famous King David said, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners and does not sit in the company of scoffers but only desires Hashem's Torah. These are very, very, very famous words. Um, and I just want to draw to everybody's attention that these, this is the first verse of the opening um, chapters of Tehillim. It's capital Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. It's chapter one, verse one, Ashrei Ha'ish, Ashrei Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the company of, of, of scoffers. And verse 2 says, He in Hashem um, that he desires only um, the Torah of Hashem, and this Torah is learned morning and evening. It is so very easy, so very easy to excuse your way and say, it's okay, I can go to this, it's half benign, it doesn't matter, I won't join them, I'm just interested to see what's happening in the world. One can, one can subslide very, very, very easily, okay? Um, and that's that's going back now, full circle, the reason why God commanded that we do many things to recall the Exodus, because he wanted the Exodus on many, many levels to be the very fabric of our nature so that we will always walk in the way of Hashem. And that's how he finally says it, Kol Adat Yisrael, Yahasu Otto, the entire community of Israel needs to do this. So that's the first case I've said it. 
Only close relatives could be parked as a single sacrifice. In the future, however, one family could go into partnership with another to keep the commandment. And the more people eating together, we are told, the more the joy. Now we're going to continue on verse 48. Kiyagur itcha ger, ba'asar pesach la Hashem, himolo kol zachar, ba'azikrav la'asoto, ba'hayake ezrach ha'aretz, bechol arer lo yechlavo. So he's repeating again. If a, a ger, if a convert comes and lives with you and he wants to make the Pesach uh, offering to God, every male must be circumcised. He then can join in the observance and be like the native born. So if we have somebody that has Megayad, they have converted according to Torah law, according to the orthodox standard of, 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 of conversion, then he can join us. But a reminder again that no uncircumcised man can eat the offering. Um, so, Let's give an example, for example, of a man who may not be circumcised if he had two older brothers. Oh, so what happens to a, there, there's a halacha about circumcision, which in the olden days, this was the only way they used to work it out. We know today that it's the case of hemophilia, but it says here, what happens if a man had two older brothers who died during circumcision? Like, why would you die during circumcision? They would they would um, bleed to death, right? If a person has a family member that is a sufferer from hemophilia, you're actually obligated not to circumcise your son, even though under most circumstance, uh, circumstances we do anything to circumcise, right? But if, if you have a case, for example, of hemophilia, you cannot circumcise. If he's not circumcised because his brothers weren't circumcised because they died during circumcision, he, for example, may not eat the Corbin basin. We're going to continue this discussion just after the break. This is 101.9 IFM. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Okay, let us continue um, with this. So, for example, in another case, if one is not circumcised, one is not even allowed to go into partnership for the Korban Pesach. So, for example, if 10 go into a partnership on the Korban Pesach or Bastelam, all 10 must be circumcised. If one of them is uncircumcised when the lamb is slaughtered, he cannot eat it later, even if he circumcises, circumcises himself before it is eaten. You have to be circumcised when you go into the deal, when you, when you buy into it. Now, um, there is, if you go look at chapter 12, which was in the beginning when we learned about the Korban Pesach, um, I'm just going to go back there myself so that I can read it properly. And you will see where it is talking about um, the Paschal Lamb. It says over there, if a household is too small for one whole lamb, because you have to eat the whole lamb, remember, and he and his next door neighbor will share the lamb, then what does it say? That according to how much each eats, that's how the cost of the lamb shall be 
share. Okay? Now, mechsat um, is kind of like, it's, it's a mechis, it's a tax. So basically they're going to say if you've got a, a sheep that costs 100 rand and you've got 10 people eating for it, how much does each person contribute? It will be according to the, the number of people in the party. Okay? But one of the very interesting things, and here is where I want to link it to circumcision. Brit Miller is called a meches, a tax. Okay? And there is a reason for this. It says that the tax, the meches that God's required, is one part of 500. Why? Because if you go look in, in, in Bamidbar, um, after the Jews fought Midian, God said, levy a meches to God on the warriors who went to battle, one part out of 500. That, that's, that's, that's the revenue services of God. He wants one in 500. Now, how do we know circumcision is that tax on a very deep level? Well, there are 248 parts in the body. We're told that a woman's body has 252. We have just a little bit more body parts than a man. If you add up the 248 parts of a man's body and the 252 parts of a woman's body, you come to 500. We know there are three partners in the formation of man. There's God, his father, and his mother. And since God has no limbs, then the total number of limbs involved in in conceiving a human body is only 500, even though we have three parts. So the meches on these 500 limbs is a single part of the body, and that is where we circumcise. So the Torah goes and states that the lamb, the paschal lamb, must be taken according to the tax of souls. That is by those who have paid the tax of their souls. And how is that? By all those that have paid through the ritual of Brit Mila, of circumcision. Verse 49, Torah and there should only be one Torah, it should be both for the native-born Jew and for the Jew that has converted in an orthodox manner. The Jews did according to what Moshe and Aaron told them to do it. They did it exactly. And so when they were preparing, there were many, many Egyptians that, that, that remember, we said, join them. They wanted to partake in the sacrifice. And Hashem said to them, you can't eat it because no outsider may eat it. And they were very, they, they were cognizant of that. Another reason, by the way, of the corporate Pesach was the whole reason behind it was to lower the power of the astrological sign of Aries, which is, Daram, you guessed it, the lamb. Okay? So the Jews now were moving into a godly people, into a people that were God's people, and we are above astrology. So God could only, only, um, release them, redeem them once he, he destroyed 
the very thing that everybody believed was running their who they were. Okay, um, and so that is why we are having the difference between circumcision and um, uncircumcision, because the sign of circumcision is such that when a Jew circumcises themselves, um, they are having an indelible mark on them that they are they have entered into the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And interestingly, this is something really, really, really interesting, is that whilst um, we have unfortunately vacillated in our um, our religious observance throughout the centuries, there has been one thing that Jews have really stuck to the majority time, and that has been Brit Mila. Okay, and uh, we are told that in the time of, of Egypt, many, many Jews didn't want, did not want to submit themselves to circumcision. They tried to hide. Midrash tells us that God made winds carry the fragrance and aroma of the Paschal Lamb. Okay, and they, would, they smelt it and they really wanted to partake in it. And that's how they were convinced, okay, um, to, to, to circumcise. Many other Jewish people submitted to circumcision because they feared that if they remained uncircumcised like the Egyptians, they would then die along with the Egyptian firstborn. And that is why um, we say that there were rivers of blood on the night of Pesach. Because if you go look in your Cheskel, it says, live by your blood, as I said to you, live by your blood. And the expression live by your blood, you can see I've read it twice, it alludes to the two bloods on the eve of Pesach, the blood of circumcision and the blood of sacrifice. So it was important to be circumcised before the first Paschal Lamb, which is very interestingly, we only perform generally the rite of circumcision of Brit Miller of a bris by day. Um, Pesach night, that night, was different because they were circumcising themselves at night. And it said that night was as brightly illuminated as midday in the summer. Um, and so it was considered as if they had done it by day. I'm going to go for a bit of a break, and then I'm just going to tell you a quick story. This is 101.9 High FM. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. So the quick story that I promised, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, there was a Gentile. Um, who would disguise himself as a Jew every year and he would go and partake of the Korban Pesach. <clears throat> Once he was without his disguise, he was as he was, he happened to be in a town called Nitzivim. And he, he was talking to some old Jew and he boasted, you know, the Torah says that no outsider can eat the Paschal lamb and it also says that no one who's uncircumcised may not eat it. Well, guess what? I'm both... A, a Gentile and, and an uncircumcised and I still eat the, the best portions. And this gentle, this Gentile really got himself into a lot of hot water because he didn't know he was speaking to none other than the great Rabbi Yehuda ben Petira. So Rabbi Yehuda immediately understood um, that this Gentile was disguising himself, pretending to be a Jew, uh, getting by the normal prohibitions, and he decided that he's going to blow this guy's cover. What did he do? There is uh, another sacrifice um, where the fat tail called the alia, it's a sacrifice that is forbidden as food, 
um, is offered on the altar. Okay? So he says, you say that you have, you've eaten the best portions. Have you ever eaten the fat tail? No, said the Gentile. So he said, well, the next time you go to the temple, you've been cheated out of your rightful share. You've never tasted the best part. Go to Jerusalem, tell your partners that you demand your equal share of fat tail. Um, why should you be cheated up? So off the next year, the Gentile uh, returned to Jerusalem. He demanded a share of fat tail. Um, and when he asked that, his partners around said, like, what type of questions are you asking? Because everybody knows that fat tail must be burnt on the altar. Like, who gave you that idea that you should eat it? So he got cross and he went and said, don't try to fool me. There was a rabbi in another town called Rabbi Yehuda ben Petera. He himself said, I should get a portion of the fat tail because I paid my full share and I should get my full portion. Then the people realized uh, that something was amiss. They, they incarcerated him. They held him until after the holiday. And then what happened was that um, they sent a message to Rabbi Yehuda and they discovered the truth. The pastor was punished and uh, punished most severely. And then the, the people of Jerusalem sent a letter to the rabbi saying, Peace to you, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betira. You live in Nitzivin, but your nets are spread over Jerusalem. So that ends up today's discussion, and I hope it was an enlightening one for you.